wounds of the war are still visible and felt in places from which the war has gone five months ago. Buildings are destroyed and human destinies are destroyed too. We traveled in places around Kyiv and we felt again the pain of what happened in February and March. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host is Tetyana Oharkova, who is in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We spend majority of your support to help Ukrainian defenders and people affected by this war. Patreon.com slash ukraineworld. So we traveled a few days ago in uh, villages and towns around Kyiv. And uh, we have seen many, many things, actually, which we would like to share with you. Uh, these villages are Barashivka, Lukyanivka, uh, Rudnitske, Berezan, but also uh, the names that you probably know better, Irpin and Bucha. What were your impressions, the first impressions? Uh, yes, indeed. Let's maybe start with uh, Berezan, Barishivka and this region and let's start uh, locating these villages. So they are located in um, Brovary region, so in the place we live, but at the same time they're quite close to Burispil. Burispil is the international airport, very well-known one before the war, which is not functioning now. So uh, Russians were approaching these regions from Sumer region and their aim, their objective was to reach uh, Brovary and then to reach through Brovary to reach Kiev. There were a huge battlefield in the beginning uh, of March, uh, if I'm not mistaken, 9th of March, uh, on, on close to village Skibin. And then there were some minor battles in, in other villages like in Rusanyev. We have already told the story of this village of Rusanyev several weeks ago. So in uh, some of the places we visited, like for example, Berezan and uh, uh, Barishivka, they were not occupied, but some of them like Lukyanivka and uh, Rudnitske, small villages in fact, they were occupied. So we were trying to talk to people and to see what was happening in place in both, on the, both sides and to compare how how people feel after after this um, five months uh, later. So let's start maybe with Lukyanivka. Imagine a village uh, with 500 people living inside this village, tiny village, in fact, very small one. And nothing is significant. When you travel, when you're just driving by car, you see some ruins, not this kind of spectacular ruins, as you can see in Irpin and Bucha, just some some smashed houses, nothing nothing so special. And then you stop and you're trying to find people to talk and you find nobody because people are busy in their gardens. You just enter a normal shop in the village, a tiny shop, 
built out of metal. And you just buy your coffee and try to to ask the seller in this shop what what uh, just say we are journalists. What do you remember from the war? And and the woman starts to speak, and she tells the whole story that a lot of real and very important events happened in this tiny village. First of all, she says that uh, Russian troops arrived quite uh, early. If I'm not mistaken, in the end of February already, yeah. Yeah, a few days after the twenty fourth, twenty sixth, twenty something like that. So uh, we can imagine the the speed with which they were moving from the Russian border because these troops, if you understand it, so they were moving from the east, not from the north. And um, this woman said, "Imagine the place you are standing now; it was covered with blood." So when she was able to enter her own shop where she works, um, just a couple of days after uh, Ukrainian army was succeeded to liberate the village, the the floor was covered covered with 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 blood of Russian soldiers who were beaten. There were two hundred, if I'm not mistaken, do you remember two hundred uh, Russian soldiers who lost their lives in this village only. And she was also talking about dead bodies of Russian soldiers who were on the ground. She was also talking about the bones of Russian soldiers and the dogs were eating these, bringing these bones of Russian soldiers during weeks after liberation. It means that uh, there were there were bodies of of dead Russians all around this tiny village. And uh, she also mentioned how she perceived that Russians are in the village because they knew that the war has come. But then suddenly, I think her husband or some of their friends just told that, well, they entered the village and they were uh, just soldiers. Only afterwards there were tanks and uh, armored vehicles. And then she, she started counting these tanks. And she said, I counted 100-something, 106 and then she tried to call a Ukrainian service, whatever, and, and, and report about this. But you, you can imagine a, a very boring uh, kind of village, normal, very calm village, boring in a good sense of the term. And then suddenly you have, you, you, you see those Russian armored vehicles, Russian tanks, and suddenly it all begins. And uh, indeed, why the soldiers were living in this shop? Uh, because it was a crossroad, crossroad between different roads. And uh, it seems that they received a, a task to control this uh, this road. And the major destruction in this uh, village, Lukyanovka, were made around this uh, crossroad, right, in, in those buildings around. And she, she told us remarkable stories, for example, that there was no electricity, obviously, uh, and... Uh, uh, the the soldiers uh, we asked also whether the soldiers robbed the, the 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 shop or different shops it depended on the situation uh but uh, the one tiny detail that that uh, that really surprised us is that they were as she said she she has the hypothesis they were uh sleeping in the refrigerators those imagine those refrigerators that you know in supermarket when you go buy coke or a beer, so they're they're quite uh, quite tall. So, so they will put them down horizontally and uh, sleep with them. Of course, there were no electricity, so they, they were not cold. But it seems that they were taking these refrigerators in order to 
to get a, a little bit warmer places to speak, to to sleep maybe this is the explanation and indeed uh, yeah she she said we were cleaning this shop for several days we were cleaning it from from the russian blood from the from the blood of the russian soldiers this is the story one other story of lukyanovka is the totally destroyed church in this village which is a wooden church and we actually filmed just the uh, just the ba- basis of it the, the fundament of this uh, of this church and uh, the remarkable thing is that it was a quite a beautiful church and a wooden church uh, and uh, it was built in late 19th century so it survived the first world war it survived the stalinist repressions the stalinist war on religion where many churches uh, in the Soviet Union were destroyed. Uh, it survived the Second World War. It didn't survive the, the Russian invasion, right? Yes, unfortunately, we just saw these ruins. And another story linked to this woman who was who worked in the, in the shop is about her own house. Her own house was also smashed by a Russian tank a few days before Ukrainian troops came there. Uh, it was a house made out out of wood. She, she told us, and she was not in this house, but it was her sleeping room. In fact, this this part of the of the house which was smashed. And she also told us that people in this village, they are not waiting for state money. They are not waiting for financial support coming from the state to start to rebuild their houses and what she did personally uh, with her husband. And they are already trying to prepare themselves for the winter. So they are trying to restore things and and they they will stay in the village during this winter. And they are preparing things. They are still walking inside. And so once again, this is a tiny village, just insignificant, I would say, one, but with such a tragic story. And also, it is also has its day of liberation. It's the 26th of March. The battle start, started 20, the 22 of March, and it lasted for four days. And Ukrainian troops uh, succeeded to, to move on, to move uh, Russian troops. Exactly. And um, another village which is very close to it is called Rudnitske. And we visited a school, a school in this village. And unfortunately, this school is just unable to be a place for 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 education of kids. It's a big school, actually, uh, I think two floors. And the school which was accepting kids from all over the region, from other other villages as well. And now the it seems that the, there was a big fire inside and uh, nothing is fixed. And you can see still uh, see those big uh, windows. I think it was from the sports uh, sports hall on the second floor, and uh, they're just black from the from the fire. Uh, so one also we can we can assume that uh, don't you remember it was Ukrainian soldiers who were staying there or Russian soldiers. Well, no matter, but yeah. usually, usually these schools, of course, in the villages, the biggest building in the village is usually a school. And, uh, of course, if there is a big group of soldiers coming in, of course, the, 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 the best place they, they can stay is in the school, most probably in the sports hall where children usually play basketball, right, or volleyball. And, uh, of course, this is a target. So coming coming back to this, you know, we discussed this already, Amnesty International report, 
that uh, Ukrainian soldiers were staying in schools, whatever. Of course, they were staying in schools because there, there would there would be no no children there. Of course, children would would be evacuated or in in their houses. But the school is probably in a particular village the only building where you can get this uh, this mass of people, several dozens or even several hundreds of people. And unfortunately, the schools are 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 targets. These buildings, and uh, as we have seen in in Rudnitsky, they are still not repaired. And one thing that struck me is that on this school there is a memory memory board commemorating one of the village dwellers, or I think he was also from Lukyanivka, who studied in this school and who died during this first Russian-Ukrainian war, in which started in 2014. I think he died in 2015. And this memory plaque is is, is broken, half broken. So there is a huge... There is a big big part of it which is, uh, which is broken. So yes. also... Re- also kind of symbolic, right? Yes, absolutely. Yes, something really symbolic in that. And maybe to to, to end this story, uh, we are discussing schools because um, because it's the beginning of September and um, Ukrainian um, Ukrainians are, Ukrainian children are going to school, but not not everybody for sure. Uh, now we discuss a lot here in Ukraine how to organize the schooling year, and this is something not something really extraordinary this year. A lot of pupils will be able to study only online. Some others will be able to do that offline, but the condition is that your school has a, a, a air defense, a, a kind of underground, a proper underground for that, and a bigger enough to uh, for all the pupils to be inside. So this is a huge discussion how to organize that. And we also listened to President Zelensky today, who announced that there is a school in Irpin already already open, and there will be 1,300 people studying there. So it means that they have all, all the facilities necessary. But unfortunately, this is not the case of the school in Rudnitsky, and we can imagine a lot of other schools in other eastern and southern um, um, parts of Ukraine. Let's move on to some other villages we visited. One of these villages is Barashevka. And uh, we told this uh, short story on our Twitter. Barashevka is a symbolic place, a historical place. Uh, for Well, its, it's, its name actually derives from the old medieval times and most probably it, it was related to, uh, to Prince Boris, uh, like Borispil also, a, a town not far away from Barashevka. And but in the 100 years ago, it was a place where a, a Ukrainian uh, prominent Ukrainian poet and scholar, Mykola Zarov, uh, refuged himself from actually the devastated Kiev when it was devastated by the Bolsheviks and then by the famine of the early 20s when Bolsheviks just cut the supplies from the villages to, to Kiev. And such people uh, needed to go to the countryside to not to starve, actually. And he found a, a a job in a village school and he was teaching, I think, literature, languages, but he was a remarkable translator from Latin and from, from Greek, primarily from Latin. And uh, he was one of the, those key um, intellectual figures of this 
what we call executed renaissance and very very interesting tandem is Zerov and Hvilovy Hvilovy the the symbol of this generation but Zerov is rather related to Kiev and Hvilovy rather related to Kharkiv and uh, Zerov was arrested in in the 30s and sent to Sandar, uh, to, to the camps and was killed in Sandarmokh in uh, Russia I think in Karelia in, in in the north as many other i think several several hundreds of ukrainian intelligentsia in 1937 uh, so we visited barishevka and barishevka for me personally it's a very interesting place because in the 90s uh, i remember that well everybody should have should 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 be surviving in the 90s and we were also like zerv because uh, Kyiv, I would not say it was starving, but we had just no money. And uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and you remember all, all those people, you know, taking pieces of land in the countryside without any houses and just uh, planting potatoes. That's what, what we were doing. And we, our family was doing this in Barishevka. And uh, we were coming, we were getting up early at, f- at four o'clock in the morning, five o'clock to get a, to get a, uh, urban train and then come to Barishivka and then have a walk of seven kilometers, about 40, 45 minutes uh, to be there at eight o'clock in the morning and to plant these potatoes, then have a rest at 11 uh, o'clock. I was 14 years old and I started reading Thomas Mann, Joseph and his brothers. So it's it's also an interesting place for me. But why we are mentioning this? Because uh, Russians have destroyed a big building there, uh, also the cinema house, which is called Start. It completely destroyed, with a, I think with a huge missile strike. So despite the fact that there were no big fights in Barishevka, there are still these signs of Russian aggression. Yes, indeed, and there is kind of a parallelism also with the situation of if you compare the beginning of the 20th century and what is happening now. Uh, we know, uh, let me tell another personal story on my, my side. Somebody of our family traveled from Kiev trying to escape uh, the Russian troops approaching from the north uh, to Be- to Berizan, which is close to Barishivka, in, in fact, really close. So people in the in the first days of war, in the first weeks of war, were thinking that uh, they would be much safer somewhere out of big cities, and many made this kind of mistake, traveling out of Kiev. We know people who traveled to Vucha. And some people traveled to to the north, to Irpin, and then they were in occupation. And I have a member of distant relative in my family, uh, and uh, a lady. She was traveling alone uh, in the in the first weeks of war out of Kiev because. Uh, uh, the place where she lived was, uh, it was not child, but she was uh, able to, to hear detonations and she was traveling to, to Berizan in order to be safer. And a lot of people were saying, she met on the way, were saying, you are crazy. All of people, everybody from here, they are moving to Kiev, and only you, you're traveling to meet our enemy just directly. She spends a couple of days almost a week in Berezan, but it was getting louder and louder every day because 
uh, Russian troops were approaching. For, they were already in Lukyanivka, and Lukyanivka and Berezain, they are, I don't remember exactly, maybe 10 kilometers, maybe 15 kilometers, not more than that. So Russians were really close, and then she traveled once again to Kiev, and then she moved uh, abroad for a couple of weeks just to be in a safe place, and then she's now, now she's back in Barashivka. So uh, this is a kind of a, a mirror situation. So people now, they're trying to escape this, this, this Rus- Russians, the Russians and terror they are bringing here to Ukraine as they did in the beginning of the 20th century with terror, with famine, um, with all the problems. And like Zeraf, uh, 100 years ago, people are traveling far from Kiev to be to be safe. But unfortunately, Russian missiles, once again, they arrive directly to, to Barashivka and they destroy and the ruins are, are really, really huge. So and no reconstruction at all there. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, no project for this reconstruction. Yes, yes. Well, we will we will see. Of course, I mean, some tiny reconstruction is going on. People are trying to rebuild their private houses, but we are we are talking about the bigger things. It is still there in 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 this state, which which Russian missile left it five months ago. Let's move on, and let's move on to um, places which which actually suffered the the biggest one of the biggest tragedies, meaning Irpin and Bucha. So we travel to Irpin. And Bucha, and these are towns to the northwest of Kiev. And uh, I'm sure you know the word Bucha. Maybe you know less the word Irpin. But this is the towns through which Russian troops have tried to enter Kiev, and they failed. We also told you a story of Moshun a, a few a few episodes ago, and Moshun is also very close. Moshun is. Uh, close to Hostomel, and these three towns, Hostomel, Irpin, and Bucha, form like a conglomerate. Uh, there is no kind of divisions between them. One goes into another. Uh, you know the story of Bucha, about these war crimes which happened in Bucha. Ukrainians are calling it genocide. Uh, well, it's it's sure war crimes. We're not sure maybe the, the, if this is a genocide. Well, the, the, but there are really killings of people, torturing uh, 412, I think, people dead. And they were they are not dead from artillery strikes. They are really dead from torturing, from bullets, uh, and that's it. But uh, in terms of destruction, Irpin is much, much, way, way, way more destructed, destroyed. And one of the reasons is that Russians were have occupied Bucha and was staying in Bucha, whereas Ukrainians were controlling parts of Irpin um, most of the time, and Russians were shelling with the heavy artillery on Irpin. And let's just describe these tiny towns. They're very beautiful. There are pines everywhere. There are trees. There are. It's like the towns in the middle of forests, and incredibly, incredibly beautiful. And uh, and. A lot of new buildings have been built in, in, in Bucha and especially Irpin over the past 
10 years. And it seems like really a place for middle class, for, for young families, young families who would go there, who would most probably work in Kyiv and who would own a car, own a, a beautiful apartment, maybe take a loan, maybe just uh, just had a, a little little children. So it's about that mostly. And uh, you just travel through European and at some places you just don't see any building which has survived, either the private building or the multi-story building. And that's really the tragic reality. Yes, indeed. And we visited this symbolic place, which is a normal normal place for uh, foreign delegations, for international delegations here in Kiev. Uh, uh, they call it Irpinsky Lipki. So this is a extremely um, pretty beautiful, it used to be extremely beautiful house. Uh, just a, like, it looks like a complex, and apartments were quite expensive several years ago. It was constructed in two thousand sixteen, and they were uh, it was home for around two hundred uh, families. Um, it is close to a military hospital, and that's why we can imagine. We don't know exactly, but that's why maybe it was so severely shelled. And uh, you've probably seen these photos of uh, Olaf Scholz, a chancellor, German chancellor, or Emmanuel Macron, a French president, or some other European leaders who visited this place. So this is a very, um, no, very well-known place. And um, in fact, this they need a lot of money for reconstruction, and there is I cannot easily imagine how they will be able to reconstruct it. It seems like uh, these uh, buildings are, you can compare that to Barodyanka in a way where you have these multi-story buildings and the way severe shelling and just no idea how to to put all this together. And at the same time, the contrast is that really you see beautiful nature. You see all these trees, you, you breathe this fresh air and you can easily imagine really young families, a lot of kids, a lot of children um, in that place, and beautiful parks and uh, modern shops at the same time. So very comfortable, very green uh, town which was smashed by uh, by uh, Russian troops. Mm. So yes, indeed, and a lot of people lost their homes and uh, we visited a very important place, visit the place of a temporary housing, a temporary housing. It, it looks like one we visited in Borodyanka a couple of months ago. It looks like a Polish project, Polish military housing for, for military, in fact, for the army. And they adapted it for for Ukrainians, for Ukrainian civil population. Uh, 350 people are already living inside. So it looks like a... Like, uh, compartments in a train it's quite tiny tiny housing uh, you have rooms for four people and uh, people who, who respond to several criteria the social criteria like for example um, women with children or elderly people or some other categories they are allowed to live there for free uh, and they are also helped by volunteers uh, and we we were able also to see they are they they receive a lot of food from this um, organization called uh, World, World Kitchen. World Kitchen, yes, indeed, they are preparing hot meals for 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 inhabitants of this complex every day. 
So uh, extremely nice place. It, and this place in a sanatorium, which was also shelled during the March. But uh, the part of sanatorium is still here. And they even have one building which is untouched. So they are people, they live um, in both in this old building and these mobile temporary homes or housing they have. And we met some people from there and uh, a lot of people that telling their tragic stories from that place. Yes, we talked to a woman who who has two kids and who is, whose husband is on the front line. He's a soldier. And uh, they had several houses in, in one place because this is kind of a, their mother's house. And then they started building their house. It's like, imagine this is typical, not maybe not only for Ukraine, when you have a piece of land, a big piece of land, and then... Uh, close to your parents' house, you build your, your, your own house. So there were several houses and uh, the shell, uh, several shells just hit them and everything was burned down, yeah. both this ma- mother's house and their own house. And uh, this is kind of a very typical Ukrainian family who would build everything with their own hands. And this man, as we were told by this, by, by, by his wife, he would build everything with with his own hands, uh, and they were really putting all their money, all their earnings into this house. They really loved it, said so they really enjoyed it. This this is really the place which we call home for them, and it's extremely was tragic to to hear this woman because she was actually crying when she was telling the story and um yeah it's 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 like this and uh, and her husband is just uh, and she said when when she informed her husband who is on the front line that there there is no home that the home burned down uh she said this was the first time when i heard him crying Yes, indeed. So it was his his creature he was they were putting all the money in that, and maybe the most tragic in this story is that the house was shelled, their house was shelled on the 23rd of March. So one week only before Russians finally left uh, Irpin and Bucha. So it stayed safe for three weeks and uh, during the last week it was demolished by uh, by Russians. So, um, and interestingly, it, 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 may, it, it was maybe the first time we've heard the story when, when we asked this woman if she is visiting her house, destroyed ruins, if she's trying to um, to make to, to restore something, to think how to do that, and to, I don't know, to just to, to rethink a future, she told us that she avoids going there. She has never, maybe she's been there only once, and she, uh, and if only she she has some money, some resources to construct something in her life, they will not go back home because for 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 her family it's a kind of her extremely severe wound the it's extremely traumatizing to see that uh, at your house you've been living for 15 years or for 15 years uh, at least 15 years she told that that her, her kids were born there and she said that she didn't take any photos or family belongings any kind of you know memorable things you 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 value and she yeah. said that uh, it, it's, it would be impossible for me to, to restart on that place. If we can, we, we, we will go elsewhere. Imagine if you, for example, your uh, 
your house is destroyed, completely destroyed, and you can still live in a park close to your house, in a temporary home, like these temporary houses in Irpin. It is beautiful in this park. It's You have a lot of kind people around you and volunteers helping you and everybody trying to help you, but still you don't have you just they, they they destroyed your your past, they destroyed your your family in a way, so there's something extremely painful in this story. Yes, and this uh, she was actually living uh, this family had a car but she she was she was not a driver, so she couldn't drive and uh She was living just on on her feet with her kids with with little bags and uh, and uh, and everything else just disappeared and her indeed all her memory as well her family photos I imagine it maybe computers where they had these family photos and so on and uh, yeah living in these temporary buildings is kind of very tricky because uh, you don't feel at home they are that they are good they 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 are providing shelter they are nice they are clean but the but it's temporary housing and the material from which they are built is probably not the best material it's it's hot in summer it will be very cold in autumn and and um, and winter especially so these people are looking with uh, with i think with a, a bit of fear into the future a bit of kind of a big worry but at least uh, the family is uh, is alive and hopefully everything will be fine with them the two kids we have seen this uh, younger daughter how she embraces her mother that that's that was very remarkable and uh, but they are alive and hopefully this is this is the most maybe joyful thing but then we went to bucha and um in bucha we we went to this car cemetery and this was the second time we went to the car cemetery what is car cemetery is the place where people collect all these burnt and shelled cars mostly most often from people who try to escape bucha irpin hostomel and were shelled by the russians and the the car just burnt after this shelling after the strikes and uh, we were just exploring one of the cars and uh, a man came to us and uh, he said i recognize this car it was a car of my friend and neighbor who was called misha and uh, he was showing us uh, his burnt knife by which he also was one of the things that he recognized that he, it was his car and even the remnants of of the bones of this man was burnt alive in his car and when we looked we looked down at this car we really we really saw some something which looked like a burnt burnt bone of of a, of a human being yes exactly it was a family driving in this car they were coming from Hostomil and they were trying to go to Bucha and then to move on to Kiev and this misha the head of the family it was his wife uh, close to him and two kids uh, on the uh, just behind him one kid of 8 uh, years old and another biggest one bigger one 23 years old two girls and then the car was shelled and misha died uh, just in place he just burned in place uh, his wife was kept, survived 
together with daughters, but the youngest, younger daughter, she was severely wounded. They stayed in Bucha. They escaped the car and they were hiding somewhere, somewhere in, in, in Bucha. And then uh, as far as the younger daughter, she was severely wounded in her hand. They did what they can to escape. They were maybe negotiating with Russians, at least what this man was t- telling us. They were lucky to escape Bucha two days later. And uh, they went to the hospital and they were able to save the life of this girl, but unfortunately not her hand. So this is a story of her uh, Ukrainian girl who lost her hand in the, in Bucha. And they never went back to Bucha. Uh, mother and the younger daughter, they are in Italy. And uh, we also know that they traveled to the United States for the operation. And the oldest, elder daughter is in Lviv in the western Ukraine. And as far mm. as we understand, they, uh, the husband, they, they didn't come back to even to bury him. So it's impossible to... To, to recognize the body, you know, inside. So this is not only a cemetery for cars. Sometimes it's also a cemetery for, for people who died inside these cars. And um, we, can, we were unable to check the story. It was a story told by a man. It was very spontaneous because he said that I was searching for this car for many months already. And by chance... It happened the same day we visited this cemetery, this Bucha. And so he was in a kind of a really real sincere emotion because it happened maybe an hour. We don't know exactly, maybe several hours before he understood that this is a very car he knows and this is his friend and this is... He's seen many videos of the explosion of the car and she recommended us to search for video in the internet. So she, he has this image of the car uh, during this explosion, but uh, for the first time he found the car what, what is still here. And he knows the story of the family. And the same day, maybe the next day, uh, in the internet we had the photo of a girl with this uh, um, uh, artificial hand. And maybe we are not sure, maybe this is the same girl. We actually published uh, published her photo on our, on our Twitter. So it was like this, maybe this coincidence and hopefully the the girl uh, survived and she has this artificial hand a, a good uh, it seems to be a good thing that she can she can use as a kind of a supplement of her real hand but but the 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 father of this family is unfortunately not no longer with us so these are the story about those wounds in the key of surroundings which are still there, which do not disappear. And you can see the destructions of of the buildings, but behind every destruction, behind every burnt car, there is a human story. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm chief editor of ukraineworld.org. 
my co-host is Tetiana Harkova, who is in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. You can follow us on social networks, Facebook, Twitter, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, SoundCloud, YouTube, Instagram. Follow us. Please follow us and share our content to spread more knowledge about Ukraine, about what is happening. We are trying not only to give you analysis and explanation, but to tell human stories. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine. Thank you.